Hello and welcome to a very special episode of How AI Built This. This is going to be our first ever highlight show, bringing together some of the answers from all the guests so far around a specific topic. This one, uh, how to build or hire a great team. So yeah, we put together some of the best answers for that, so I hope you enjoy and get something from it. First of all, we have Richard Potter, uh, who's the CEO and founder of Peak in Manchester. Um, He was the first guest on the show, and we had a great chat around his approach to growing and building that team. So yeah, enjoy that. We were trying to grow a business from scratch as well as growing an AI business from scratch. So some of our early hires and prioritizations came from wanting to grow the business, not just the tech side, right? So you mentioned Lucy, Lucy, who's been with us from the start as yeah. our um, head of people. Like our, That was like our first investment because we have this strong belief that we're going to be successful because of our team and our culture that's going to trump everything because we'll be able to do whatever we want we can pivot we can uh, morph we can re you know we can and we've got to where we've got to today because we've got an amazing culture and team um so we prioritize that first and then getting solid foundation from a management team perspective and and doing something that a lot of companies maybe wouldn't do which is making sure that you know, Atoll's our CTO, Dave ran, ran and runs operations, um, and I'm more commercial. Um, but then bringing Lucy in from a people perspective, and then Will in from a, uh, at the time, a product now um, data science and customer success perspective, we had this really st- like st- strong sort of top group of people that we could then build um, around yeah. um, or with, alongside. Um, whereas I think a lot of startups will go straight to um, like building the building the teams, whereas I, w- I wanted to build the sort of the the network of like colleagues or peers that we were going to build this company together with. Like foundations to make everything stable. Yeah, because then I felt that we could that we could actually that would help us scale quicker. Turns out you were right. Uh, maybe, maybe I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, th- I, th- I think so because you're self-limiting. I think I think a lot of self tech startups are self-limiting because they. Um, they push everything through the founders so we're lucky we, we've got three founders right yeah. um, so we each kind of had a distinct area of the business now if there's two of you that would be also be okay if you were a, if, but if you were a solo founder that would be very very difficult and if you're a solo founder who didn't then bring in people around them that could take things off them fully um, that you would, you would just naturally move much much slower and yeah. life would be harder so we've been able to move quicker because we had that team and as soon as we got that then we were into right. We you know we need the right skill sets both from a data science and an engineering perspective, um, and that yeah, and that and that was fun. Yeah, I think the the growth was pretty rapid from then on. It was kind of higher in every month, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. We so very quickly after that, um, Dom, Dom and Stu joined Peak, and I think you helped us with most of our early recruitment in data science, right? Yeah, this podcast um, isn't about me, but I think uh, Peak's <laughs> probably only existing right now because of dominance to in the early days. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, you're right. We, no, we, helped, we helped at the start. But I think a key takeaway, and we're going to get to advice for other people, but I think without the structure that was set up before, I don't think you get the the speed of hiring and decision-making, I think. Yeah. Because I think you're right. You had three founders and a couple of senior people yeah. out with that. They can make decisions on hiring. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone learns now that hiring's almost every company's number one priority. So how what have you done to set that up for success? And whether intentionally or not, back in 2015, I think 
you guys already had that pretty nailed yeah well it yeah, I think I nicked that idea off someone else because obviously I'd never grown a company before. But, you know, the, a large part of running a business is, is recruitment. You know, got to, particularly in the early days, you know, you don't have anything. You've got to sell two people that they should join your business um, and that it will be their business and we're going to grow this together. And that's the, that's the spirit we adopt at Peak. Um, but we've always put loads of effort into that. I think the thing, lessons for others would be, you know, you want to move really quickly. And so you have a temp, and, and everyone sees the best in everyone. So you've you've way more bias to saying yes to somebody joining your business than no, yeah. naturally, because you because of that speed imperative, because you want to like everyone you meet, and any little doubts you have in interviews you put to the back of your mind. <laughs> Whereas what we've learned is in having a few of us responsible for that, um, we move quite quick in hiring decisions, but we actually but we're very thorough and make sure that we all have a say. And something I learned from UBS actually, back going all the way back, I met everybody at UBS before joining it. Peers, uh, managers, 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 um, absolutely everybody. And anyone could say no, no matter what grade they were, whether they were the um, the team admin, whether they were a junior associate or whether they were a managing director, any of them could say no. And we have the same thing here at Peak because different people see different things in people. And, and so I think what that has meant for us is that our hiring decisions, we have got some wrong over the years. Um, and I think if you get them wrong, you're getting them wrong for you and that person, then that's not fair. You need to make a good decision that that, that, that that person is right and they need to be able to make the decision that business is right. And if you get it right, then amazing things happen. And if you go back to those early days, um, all those all those first data scientists at, at Peak are still here and they've grown with the business and helped us grow the business and it's their business. That's the, I think you have to have that sort of rigor in recruitment. And that's quite unusual for me because I'm not that, no, I would normally make fast decisions off. Like buying a website after a few whiskeys. Exactly, <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> I think you're right. No, I think hiring's a big thing. We could talk about this forever. I will move on in a second. But I think what always stood out when we did do that kind of initial scaling was you got involved in every single part. The process was the same for everyone. Yeah. Um, which I think is important. Um, and feedback was thorough regardless. Um, and I think even now, four, almost five years later, those things still stand in recruitment. So there's too many founders and bigger companies that don't provide detailed feedback, don't set people up for success, don't have a big enough input from everyone. It's yeah. like you said, it, it, everyone sees everything slightly differently. So I think that was really good. Um, I think a big reason why everyone's still here, I mean, even though some people might think it's only four years some of those people have been here, the average tenure of people in IT now is like, I looked at a study the other day, it's something like 18 to 24 months. Sure. I, can, well, I can believe that. Nuts. It's crazy. It's nuts. It? I mean, the only other worst industry is actually recruitment, which is apparently 13 months. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, to be somewhere less than two years is pretty standard in IT now. And there's pretty much nobody been here less than two years unless they joined recently. Yeah. Um, so no, that's amazing. I think it stands true to, to the stuff that you started with. I think some people will be really interested in, we've kind of talked about challenges of scaling, but is fundraising as bad as everyone makes it out to be? Huh. If you'd asked me that six months ago, I'd have said no. Uh, <laughs> but now, I don't know. Uh, so, well, we've only done two rounds of funding, yeah. I should say. We had our seed round and then a year later we um, a year and a bit later we closed a, a series A yeah um, and we've just been really lucky to like meet great investors and not really have to do a heavy fundraising process for either of those two 
Um, series B round, which will be the next one for us, is the one that everyone says is the hardest. Oh, is that um, like the... Yeah, I, th- I think there's a variety of reasons why people think it's hardest. Um, but I think it's because you're a bit in between stages, really. You, you, you've neither absolutely proved it. So it's not like a late stage private equity investment, but it's not like an early stage you can sell from a PowerPoint. It's somewhere in between. And, and that's a and, and that's a hard, you know, a, a hard thing to get away because you've got to meet investors who both got conviction in what you do, but like the numbers that they see at the same time. I suppose um, you'll probably have to like them more than maybe your seed round or an early stage because for some companies, maybe not everyone, I assume that you just kind of want to get that money in and maybe you make the wrong choice at the start. Well, so we, well we've always been selecting for do we want to work with these people. Um, so so I, I would go with that's my number one. If you don't get good vibes in an investor meeting, even if they're interested in you, don't bother because you don't want to work with people you don't want to work with. But I, th- I, you know, I think I think fundraising is. I think we found it easy historically. I don't think that's great. I don't think we're about to find it easy in the future because um, we're we're now in a position where we are trying to do something fundamentally different, new, unique, and we're talking about trying to shape an industry the way we want it to be shaped. And there are very few investors who will make investments on those bases. Yeah. Okay. Um, at our stage, um, and uh, but 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 we'll see. Certainly, I think one of the benefits we have is we're in a hot sector. We're doing something really interesting. Having our AI system and our unique take on the market um, makes it such that everyone wants to talk to us. So we have the ability to have the conversations. Um, so we'll see when it comes to the next round of funding as to whether we can uh, make it look as easy as the last two. <laughs> That's good to hear because I hear a lot of like horror stories around fundraising, but maybe people just aren't choosing the right investors, the right people behind their business. So yeah, no, that's, that's well, very helpful. Yeah, and I, I, th- I, I think um, people, yeah, it possibly depends on the founder, you know, yeah. uh, f- for sure. You know, I've worked in, if you think about that, you know, I've worked in as an equity research analyst. Of, you know, I, n- I understand how people analyze businesses. Yeah, okay. Um, that makes it possible for me to present the business in a way that people will want to receive that business being presented to them. If you were a technical founder, I think you would find it very, very difficult because you'd have to learn that and learn to look at your business in a way that you naturally don't look at it. As a tech founder, you would look at the product, the technology. So I think it's possibly each to their own. But the thing that I would definitely say is just meet as many people as you can. If you like them, focus on building those relationships. If you don't get a good vibe, don't bother. Treat them like friendships. And then, um, and then when you need to raise money, those people will be there to support you. Now we're going all the way back to episode three where we had Eric Matteson-Dreyfus. Um, Eric is uh, the other half of the Mancamel organisation team, but also a spectacularly talented data scientist. Um, he's the head of data science at a company called Attest in London. Um, so again, I asked him about kind of scaling and growing teams and what he thinks um, is useful for when you're hiring data teams. You've obviously learned a lot from being a massive company or massive companies and banks, not being a data scientist while doing data science. Then you've learned a lot as a founder who has to stay technical, but pitch and sell and get investment. Um, And now scaling and growing teams. So what do you think makes a good head of data science? And also what do you think is important when, I suppose hiring data scientists, because that's a big part of your job and my job. Yeah, so I'd say, yeah, about hiring, I, I don't know 
Um, it's, good, it's good for me. <laughs> it's such a difficult thing these days, um, but it's all about selling uh, nowadays. Data scientists are so in demand and that it's quite different from when I used to work in banking and you would hire, uh, especially in sort of prestigious banks, um, you would get a lot of applicants and they are selling to you. They want to work in your team. They want to yeah. be in the front office doing this and this and this. Yeah. Nowadays, especially as a non-Google, non-Facebook, non-DeepMind, non, uh, non-company companies that are sort of super hyped and everyone wants to be with, uh, work at, um, you have to sell hard. Yeah. So much competition. And to the point where sometimes when I interview, it's, it's a balancing act between are you actually understanding this person and whether they fit in because I'm so much in sale mode. I often find myself just selling, 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 selling. Yeah. Being this, uh, you know, talking about the vision and yeah. you know, all the big arms out going, yeah, yeah, or energetic. Yeah. And then halfway through the interview, I'm like, I actually have no idea if I want to hire this person. Because <laughs> I've, I've, I've been selling, 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 selling. I can see this person is now super excited about the job. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, okay, uh, hang on, hold on. Can you do the job? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that is the thing. Uh, that we're in this crazy place right now where the, the good data scientists are so wanted, especially in a place like, uh, like London where so much competition, yeah. that to even get them to come in for an interview, the good ones, you're so, winning already. That's hard, right? And then, you know, getting them to then want to join is, is a huge, um, a huge accomplishment to get anyone to join. I think so, yeah. Good. So, it's it's a really difficult. I, I I mean I have certain things I look for, um, and I'm also quite strict about. I want those characteristics in a person. Yeah. Uh, Do you are you for characteristics rather than technical? Yeah. For example. Uh, you yeah. Definitely. To an extent. When, yeah. When oh, I, 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 I couldn't be a data scientist no matter how nice I was as a person. But, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but there's there's a base level. Yeah. I think you can train the rest. I, oh, I would always prefer a junior who's smart and keen and capable of learning yeah. and open to learning than someone with technical ability that I'm not sure will fit into the team. Like it's all about the team and uh, getting them to work together for me. I would yeah. say, hey, yeah, it just takes one person not functioning well within the team to sort of destroy a good dynamics and a good feeling in the team. Oh, 100%, we and see then, it all the time. Yeah. So, um, so I would rather not hire uh, if I can't find the right fit into the team. I think that's important. We've learned that a lot from a couple of people. The other thing that we found when we had a similar problem when hiring, so we only had graduates, and uh, or uh, people with no recruitment experience, sorry, not just graduates. Uh, we did the same thing. We sold, 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 sold all the amazing stuff that happens when you do well at our company. I kind of forgot that there's a real like grind at the start of it. Yeah. So you don't see a lot of the amazing stuff we pitch in an interview. Yeah. Until you've been here for a while. Yeah. And you've tasted some of that success. So we got to the point where we actually flipped on his head and said, by the way, it's gonna be a bit of shit for a bit. Like you're gonna to have to get the head down and just knuckle kinda of knuckle down almost. And that's actually worked quite well for us because all the stuff that is amazing is still true, but we've set expectations from the start that just that you don't just get handed it. Yeah, um, and I think on a scale that's exactly true. That's that's the other side of it, right? One thing is you may not have tested that person or you don't feel you really know about it because it's in selling mode. The other thing is you don't want to promise to this person. Like, yeah, there might be really cool things that's happening in your company, 
but probably not for for the junior that's just starting now. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They didn't get the, yeah. The, the, the investment doesn't mean anything to them. And things change all the time in a scale up as well. Like yeah. what, I've also had that where pitch things and I've had people join, and by the time they join, this is not what we're working on anymore. Yeah. Because we changed direction. Next up, we have Craig Mackay. Craig is the CEO and co-founder of um, Edinburgh-based Shark Tower. We had Craig on back on episode 10. He's been responsible for recruiting and building high-performing teams across project management, kind of varying levels of projects, and now building a AI company. Um, so really good insight from him, kind of his top tips for building high-performing teams. I've certainly learned how not to do it. I think there is a balance. You've got to give purpose. High-performing teams need to have purpose, right? I think everybody has to have shared incentives. It's easy. I I know in my career I've been the most depressed when I've struggled to have purpose and, and work. I When I left Stanley Bank, which was a great environment, my first experience is I went and got a permanent job at another bank. I won't mention them, but they just hired like 250 uh, change analysts, project analysts going to their group change function, right? And we just all sat in this big HQ. And I got through my work in like a day. And I was just bored, so I was sent to new work, and I was eventually told to slow down because I was making other people look bad. Uh, and I was encouraged to go to this on-site place they had to go and just relax. I'm like, this is insane. I want to do stuff. So I think people need purpose and pace uh, to be high-performing. So you need to be able to have autonomy. I think people are going to be careful with, like, autonomy is a team thing. I've often seen people be frustrated coming, well, you hired me as a as this role, data science, and I want to have autonomy. I want to do whatever I want. I want to go and think deeply about this one subject. No, autonomy comes as a, as a team, as a collective. Yeah. Um, but you also have to have purpose with pace. And to me, that is a practical application. So I go back to, I'm a big thing for feedback loops. So whether you're, and I think this is probably one of the biggest learnings for the data science profession as it moves now to become more industrialized and more, you know, more um, routine and expected mm-hmm. organizations, and um, move away from academia. Yeah, it, we, you know, it has to have feedback loops. So you have to be able to play to be high performing. You have to be able to share your output and get feedback immediately and, and iterate and change it. Um, I think that's how you have high performing high performing teams. Um, the other part is you've got to have, and I think. We've, so we were talking earlier on just before we started about adapting to the current climate and doing yeah. podcasts remotely. I think the other part is you've got to have a connection. To be a high-performing team, you've got to care for each other. And I think is it's too easy to try and get focused on, we've got a big thing to deliver. We've got a mission to deliver. We've got a vision. Let's just build stuff and then keep going or let's keep doing R&D. And in the old days when we all came through certain structures and organizations or certain graduate programs or anything else or went to university, you learn to care for people because you were brought up together. Obviously, there's a lot of churn in startups and scale-ups and fast-paced, but you do need to make sure that you spend enough time making sure people do connect, socialize, and, and care because you know if you care for your colleague, you're going to perform highly for them and you're going to look after their back. Uh, so it can't just be about the output. And this has been fun times to try and find new ways to keep connected and find new um, virtual online ways to, to make sure that people still care for each other and look out for each other. Um, which has been fun over the last few weeks as we've pivoted to full remotes. 
Following on from Craig, we've got Alistair Andrew, um, who is the CEO and co-founder of, uh, well it was Airs back on episode 12, but now they are called Dayshape in Edinburgh. So he, uh, he talks about growing the company and what they thought the process might look like and then how that culture has evolved. Um, so it was a really interesting one as well. From a kind of a growth perspective, did you, did you, I don't know, did you two find it challenging to grow the company, but also kind of keeping it as your own, or was it always a plan to have a much much bigger company? Um, I think kind of certainly, yeah, I, I definitely it was never really kind of intended to be a kind of like two man band style thing, like so it was just natural that we would grow when when we could afford to do so, um, and. I've really enjoyed the kind of experience of being part of a company that's been expanding, especially I think um, it's amazing how much other people bring and shape the, the kind of whole experience and just really enjoy, you know, working with all the people that have kind of joined us on this this kind of journey so far. They've all brought something different and have made the whole kind of thing a lot better than just uh, me or Andrew would have done by ourselves. Um, and, you know, I, like all our success is not due to <laughs> is due to them, not really. Um, like we just kind of sort of sometimes I feel like a kind of arsonist, you know. Like I just kind of struck the match <laughs> and, and let it is kind of whatever. Uh, the, the, see what, whatever see what ends up. Just kind of exploded out of the way. Um, um, certainly, yeah. And did you notice a difference when it went from like, so this is something I found um, when I joined the company, um, there was like six people and now there's 30 odd of us across like various countries. Um, did you find it hard going from maybe the two of you, then maybe to that kind of core team of five and then suddenly five became 30? Is it hard to keep kind of the culture and identity or does it always just evolve anyway? It's uh, a good question. I guess um, it has... I mean, I think kind of uh, before we got really big, or not that that we are really big, but before, like comparatively, um, we we started growing a lot more last year. Yeah, and um, we'd done some some work on like what was important to us as a company, like as people, and trying to kind of define that that kind of culture that had partly been kind of just inherent in me and Andrew, and, and partly kind of what other people had brought to the mix. Um, and, and trying to kind of actually document what was important to us, and I think that process at the time it felt kind of it felt quite quite strange to be doing, you know, when there's like eight of us in an office to try and uh, write down what our core values were and, and, and what that meant. But um, I, I think in hindsight, it's been really useful because it, it's helped kind of guide like who who joins the company and the kind of people that join and and that. And that's kind of helped preserve it as it's grown. Like everyone's kind of got a, a central point. They're like, yeah, okay, like this is who we are, and they feel part of that. Um, so, so that certainly helped to kind of preserve that, basically. Yeah, no, that's great. We did a similar exercise with kind of core values, and, and we're going through kind of what what the brand actually means. It's actually quite difficult. Like it's not an easy thing to sit down and do. Um, so no, it's good that you did it so early. Um, and it seems from like everything you see on social media about air. So when I've chatted to you about the team and everything, and even just the way you spoke about them there, but everything seems like super positive within the company. I mean, I know you guys do your kind of circuit workouts in the meadows. I don't know if they're compulsory because maybe that's not a nice thing. No, they're not, um, they're not compulsory, but um, they're definitely... It seems like everyone does it. 
it's quite uh, well. There's a kind of dedicated about five or six, um, and yeah, it's just really good fun. Like that was kind of totally um, driven by Lauren, our kind of business development manager. Like um, she was wild keen on CrossFit, and uh, and it's kind of like, yeah, okay, I've like I've kind of heard of CrossFit, and she was like, oh, I'll run a session at lunchtime, and everyone just kind of piled in on a Tuesday and kind of do. So now it's interesting. We've been keeping it up virtually. She posts on our Slack channel, like, right, this is this week's kind of exercise, and then people kind of do it when when they get a moment. So you get a lot of kind of uh, red, sweaty face pictures <laughs> kind of coming up in our company oh, channel. Brilliant. But it's just like a really good, good fun. Um, uh, yeah, and I really like just that stuff like that happens, um, and it's kind of organic. People have have decided yeah, to nice. do it because because it's something they like doing and they've brought that with them uh, and I think we've all benefited from that We move on to episode 14 uh, with Tom Liptrot so Tom is an independent data consultant but he has built teams and was quite a key part of building the peak data science team um, if you think back to the start of this episode with Richard, Richard Potter Tom played a huge part in the success of that so uh, he talks about the kind of challenges of finding the best people and um, how much of his time was taken up by recruitment and loads of stuff in between um, so it was a really useful insight from Tom You know recruitment was probably a third of my time was spent on recruitment, even with the excellent help that we had from <laughs> from you guys. Um, you, know, <laughs> it, you know, I probably I probably interviewed 150 data scientists or something like that, and and what you know, in something like that going yeah. through, and and you, I guess you have to get. It's really important, you know, because you. That's 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 everything. That's all you know. That's all you've got in a company, really, is a bunch of people in a room doing what you've asked them to do. <laughs> if you don't get the good ones, you, you know, you don't have a company, really. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, that it it it's, takes up a, a, a lot of time. Um, I think you get better at it, and you you, you know you you start to realize you can filter out the you know the charlatans quite quickly, and I think you know. Having a good recruiter, um, you know, without being, you know, trying to plug you too much, does make a massive difference. Because after, you know, after a while, all the CVs that we were getting sent were good people, <laughs> you know, because you yeah. kind of worked out what the so that initial sift was already done. Um, yeah, then it's more about kind of how they perform and kind of how they sell themselves rather than yeah. wondering if they could do the job. Yeah, yeah, wondering whether they've, you know said they can do something they can't on their CV yeah. and those kind of things. But yeah, trying to, all of those people management trying to, you know, get make sure people are happy, make sure people are developing. You know, they take up a yeah, a lot a lot of time and and it yeah. it, it, it eventually became, you know, a a different job than than it was at the beginning. It, it, you know, it wasn't really a you know, I wasn't spending much time coding or you know or or doing maths or anything yeah. it's more it's more like coaching other people saying have you tried this technique or um you know go and go and read this paper and you know or try changing this little bit of code and you know that's 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 fun as well because you just you know you're getting involved with lots of different projects but it's a bit different because you're never you're never sitting down and getting in that kind of zone of concentration that i quite like you, you know where you're kind of really getting deep into a problem it's more like 
the problem is the whole company then <laughs> you know that's you're just yeah. in it constantly of trying to mold this whole company and that that's that's kind of a yeah it's a different it's a different thing um, yeah i think i think you hit the nail on the head there about uh like when you're hiring it's, it's so important because that is all the company really is and i think it may be fair to say at some of the previous companies you worked at or, or even if you just look at i don't know some of the massive organizations you can almost get away with hiring a couple of like semi yeah like average to poor data scientists and maybe we've got a little bit of experience maybe understand some of the basics but i suppose when you're working at a yeah. smaller company growing at such scale like there's no real room for passengers yeah yeah definitely i think yeah and particularly like at, at peak where where data science was so central to what the company did yeah you, you know yeah everyone had to be you know yeah pulling in the same direction you know after a while you could hire more less experienced people but they still had to be sharp you know yeah. and i think being you, you still have to build that kind of um you know a structure that people can progress through in some way so you can hire people straight out of a master's because there's lots of them available but you cannot you know and you can also have a few more experienced people who can supervise them and having that kind of those levels of of expertise is really useful to building a sort of culture because the, the, the culture is where the the knowledge lives really you, you know the, yeah. the, you, you know if you're like this guy, you know go and speak to that guy over there about optimizing your sequel or go and speak to her about doing your forecasting or you know those those kind of um yeah having knowledge and also having exchange of knowledge is really key to having a good team because you know everyone who works as a data scientist is generally really interested in learning and development and teaching themselves new stuff and yeah. you've got to you really have to allow that for people to be happy and to, and also to have a well-functioning team and i think make getting that balance between the the customer work and also the development and interesting stuff is is sort of really important to having a good team i think yeah i agree with that um and just lastly on that then did you did you find that I suppose easier or maybe even harder because kind of around about that time when you were starting to build that team, the, the kind of it was almost like that kind of first real explosion of data science in Manchester. Like there was a lot of companies hiring, there was a lot of people coming out of those master's courses, like you said, even people who had maybe been like, kind of a PhD in physics or a PhD in something else had realized that yeah. there was maybe an application as a data scientist in industry. Did, did that make yeah. it quite yeah. tough to cut through the noise or? Uh, no, I, I think it, it, worked really well at peak because because we were a relatively large data science team yeah. and we were a company that focused on data science and ai stuff it was quite easy to attract people because you could it was obvious they were going to learn there and so you get so you know you kind of had the people coming straight out of a master's it's a really attractive place to come where there's you know 10 really experienced data scientists there who you can work with and, and learn from Whereas a lot of companies where there's maybe one or two data scientists within, you know, say a really big company, it's, it, it, you can kind of end up getting left on your own. And that, you know, that's kind of a risk for a newly qualified person because you won't end up achieving anything. Yeah. I think, you know, there, it, it was an attractive place to come and, and it still is. Um, you know, it became more difficult in terms of getting experienced people, I think, because, just the, there's so few of them and, and you know financially you have to pay them a fair bit to, to, to get them to come yeah I, I think 
that that's harder. But the the yeah, having a big team makes it really makes it really attractive. I think. Yeah, I think that was one of the things I learned quite quickly back in like 2016-ish that most teams maybe had, for example, if you're a software development team, there's maybe 20 of you as standard in a lot of companies, but most data science teams seemed to be one or two. Um, Normally a very senior person with maybe more of a kind of data analyst underneath them to do some of the initial work. And then they didn't really need much more than that, depending on what the company did, obviously. Um, But yeah, it was always a good sell that there was more of the people there. Yeah, and I think they're also, it's also hard because they're nearly always new teams, and so that you know because they haven't been around for ages, and so they don't often have clearly defined goals or, or tasks, and so you, you you see a lot of people just thinking, oh, we we need a data science team, and they don't necessarily know what a data science team can do or what AI can do for the business. Yeah, and and I think that's that's a, a challenge, you know, for for companies building building new teams is, is yeah. understanding what sort you know what sorts of things it can do and what it can't do which is almost as, as important and last but not least we have episode 15 with leanne fitzpatrick so leanne when we spoke to her was head of data science at hello soda in manchester and um, she has since moved on is now data science manager uh, at talk talk but we talked about how she kind of built a team in a startup when they didn't really know what they were doing or what they needed. Um, so how did she go about building her own team? What lessons did she learn? What's her thoughts on communication style? Um, and I'm sure she's taken a lot of that into her new role as well. So I hope you enjoy. Building a team is, is difficult. Like going from being an individual contributor to management, I, I, I don't think anyone would say that that's an easy shift to make. Even if you have the best of support networks and the best business to help you with that, it's just an individual shift that you've got to completely go through. And, I, you know, I can safely say that I I probably wasn't, and I don't think I was great at it at the beginning. But the good thing is, is that I feel like I did have a kind of a support structured there and also like that's where I really leaned into um the Manchester community and the Manchester data community that was growing at the kind of same time that I was developing and kind of growing as into this kind of team lead let's say and and hiring people and then the great thing that was happening was that globally there was this recognition for hey we've got this I mean it wasn't just like going into a management role um, and building a team it was also building a team of people that we hadn't quite defined as a as a as a um as a globe, what data science actually was and like what these skill set that you needed and what did we need as a business and all these like, so there wasn't just the kind of the normal things kind of moving from that individual contributor role to a manager. It was also the fact that like the type of people we were hiring for a didn't really fully exist because there wasn't like a rigid, like a rigid path for people to come through. And also um, that, you know, we can't quite define what we wanted because everybody else was figuring it out. And so I think we were in that in that forefront of like figuring these things out and and I, you know, and figuring out what were the skill sets that people needed. Did You know, and we were looking at Docker back in 20 at the end of 2015. That wasn't even something that went on my on my CVs, for example, until like. I think twenty end of twenty seventeen, early twenty eighteen, because I didn't even think about that really being a data, a data skill set that you needed. In my mind, it was just something that the rest of the technical team would support you with. So yeah. these types of really like, like um, 
important concepts for people that are in that position to be making those decisions about, but also don't seem something that you'd think about at the time. Like, and what was our hiring process? So I was kind of like literally having to figure it all out all at once, yeah. but luckily could lean into that Manchester network and could lean into what was going on. And that's where I really started to use Twitter to figure out like, is there anybody else out there doing this type of thing? And, you know, reading a lot of blogs. And that's where I realized actually like, <laughs> it was true, you know, like, and maybe I, I think my big regret was not giving back in like, in terms of writing up, but I'm not a writer, but hopefully I, I feel like I, I'm more of those people that likes to go out and just talk about these things. And that was what kind of really spearheaded that for me was just having these conversations with other people after say going along to a meetup or, uh, or presenting at something and just chatting to somebody and being like, Oh, I haven't thought about that. That's a really useful thing to think about. So that, I think I've gone off on a bit of a tangent, but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't easy. And I think the biggest thing now is just, I think it's a little bit, not easier, but I think there's more of a kind of a concept of what a data scientist is. And that's also known by, you know, the kind of both the candidate and the employer and also um, the recruiter within. And I think there's some more alignment, which makes life a little bit easier on the hiring side. And then now you've also got that kind of retainment side as well, which is how do you grow and establish, like how do you keep your staff engaged? How do you um, get them working on exciting projects when maybe there's not always necessarily exciting things to be worked on these these types of concepts of uh, how do you grow people within a very small business um when they maybe want to become more senior or they want to manage like these again are things that i don't have all the answers for but it's just kind of being really honest with with my team and saying hey like this is where we're at um and i again i don't do that perfectly all the time but I try. <laughs> that was an interesting chat we had. Um, we actually spoke to Tom Liptrot last night um, for a podcast, and we spoke about the fact that there's not always a defined career path. So, like, one of the things we said was he noticed being head of data that he actually really missed just like sitting down programming because a lot of his day was like board meetings or client meetings or uh, coaching, which he really does enjoy and, uh, and finds kind of valuable. But you're telling someone else how to do the thing that you want to do in a kind of very basic way. Um, and there, it, there's not always a really clear career path. And this is kind of tech and maybe just industry wide that there's not really a path just to be like a very, very good senior person. Like it almost feels like you have to become head of data or team lead or whatever it might be. And um, so, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that, like how do you progress in a small company? And then maybe the answer is you just get very, very good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also championing in people when they say that it is time for them to, to try something else and being okay with that. Because fundamentally, there is a lot, there's a huge amount of data science within within just the data science concept itself, like the different types of data yeah. you can work with, the different formats of data, like, and then the different types of models that you can even get into, and then how you're even deploying those. So there's so many different parts so thank you if you tuned into the first highlight show please tell me if there is uh, a topic you would like to hear more on and um, we do have more on the building high performance teams on the way but yeah i hope you enjoyed that kind of snippet um, and you got something from some of the guests if not all of them but yeah thank you for tuning in really do appreciate it and uh, we'll be back soon cheers bye-bye